Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's February the 17th, 2023. We're up to 2023. Seems as if we're at a pivotal point when it comes to technology, the history of technology. OpenAI and their chat GPT uh, chatbotters seem to be changing everything. Seems as if a new era is beginning. Uh, an interesting thing down the chatbot rabbit hole with Stephen uh, by Stephen uh, Levy, uh, editor at large at Wired. Uh, Levy, I'm not sure what he thinks, but he's one of, if not the leading tech journalist over the last tech writer and tech journalist over the last 30 years. He watches Silicon Valley about as carefully as everyone, even if he lives on the East Coast. His last book was Facebook, The Inside Story. He's an editor at large at Wired Magazine, um, writing all sorts of interesting stuff. Uh, he's been on the show many times, actually, in the past. He was back on the show in 2011 when it was a TechCrunch show talking about his Google book. And then he was on back in 2020 when the Facebook book launched. So I thought it would be a good opportunity uh, to revisit with Stephen. He's joining us from New York City, in particular in the context of whether, Stephen or not, we're on the verge of a new era in tech with ChatGPT and uh, these AI revolutions that seem to be changing everything? Um, short answer is yes. Uh, I said uh, basically in a, in a column, uh, my first column of this year, that uh, I witnessed several big phase shifts in technology. Um, I missed the one about the chips, but uh, I was in, in time for personal computers, um, uh, which changed lots of stuff dramatically. And then you had connectivity, the internet. Um, yeah, in your personal computer book, you, you wrote a book about Apple, you wrote a book about the iPhone. So you, you've been there many times. And Yeah, and yeah mobile. And, and, and when something like this happens, social, when something like this happens, then there's a reshuffling of the power relationships um the places that uh dominate now have to reprove themselves and the there's green fields for startups so uh it was clear to me a couple months ago that there's going to be hundreds and probably thousands of startups right now you know getting funding uh, for ideas of plugging into one of these big chat bots and being a front end to deliver specialized services. Uh, uh, just last week or week, week or two ago, we saw Brett Taylor, who was the co-CEO of Salesforce. Before that, he was at Facebook. Before that, he was at Google. Um, he's uh, matching up with this guy, Clay Baver, who was in charge of the innovation section of Google, they're starting a startup, of course, which is going to tap into the chatbots to deliver business services. And, you know, that this is what everyone's going to do. It's the, you know, Y Combinator, if you go to their next uh, demo, which will be, I guess, uh, 
coming up soon, but then certainly again in the summer, um, probably half the companies are going to say, well, this is why we're going to make use of these AI chatbots. So it's I think everybody, need, um, you and I right. may need to reinvent ourselves. As I may have to, certainly you don't need to, but I may have to reinvent <laughs> myself as a chatbot or try to. So you mentioned that you got social. Of course, you wrote the book about Google and about Facebook, two critical companies in the social epoch. Uh, Google acquired uh, YouTube and Facebook acquired Instagram. Um, was the period between around 2000 and 2022, 23, was it the social media, the social network epoch? We did a show um, earlier this week uh, with Glenn Reynolds, Inst Mr. Instagram, and he talked about the early history of blogging. Is, right. Well, I remember the blogging. Does our AI age, does it replace the age of social media? Well, that's an interesting question. Uh, I think, and I took it on, you know, um, in my column last week. I just had a new one today about something totally different. But uh, last week I wrote about, this is the week that uh, Google announced BARD, which is going to be its chatbot. They're going to work that into search and, of course, Microsoft uh, introduced their uh, new Bing, which is powered by OpenAI, which is, you know, falling in love with people now. And, you know, people are playing with this somewhat half-baked, you know, uh, version that, that Microsoft rushed out. And uh, I looked at Quora because that seemed interesting to me. You know, it's run by this guy, Adam D'Angelo, who used to be, uh, many years ago, the CTO at Facebook, he had actually been to high school with Mark Zuckerberg. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, he started Quora, which is a way to connect person to person. You know, someone would have a question and they sort of, in a crowdsourced way, put it up on Quora. And maybe some people had great answers to it. They were perfectly positioned to answer that specific question. And a couple, you know, a couple of weeks ago, a few weeks ago, uh, Adam D'Angelo, the CEO, released an app called Poe, which you ask questions just like you do in Quora, but a chatbot answers it. And Adam's got relationship with OpenAI. Um, he's on the board there. So OpenAI is one um, chatbot that answers your question. There's, you can kind of have uh, Anthropic, which is another company um, that built the chatbot. They used to be OpenAI. Um, and or they can answer the question. And that struck me as, you know, gee, maybe this is something where the AI chatbots are going to overwhelm social, you know, because it seemed to me a significant moment that instead of having a human answer a question, uh, you would have a bot answering a question. And the fact is that social is not really well positioned to adjust to this AI revolution. Um, you know, when you joined Facebook, you did it to get in contact with the human beings you knew. And a chatbot might be able to carry on a conversation like you do with people you know, but it can't be your grandmother or your college roommate or whoever you connect to uh, on, on Facebook. Um, uh, you know, uh, as of yet, the chatbots aren't influencers, right? So it seems to me uh, to be the opposite of social. Um, talking to a robot. Yeah, it's really interesting. And, and in that sense, as 
Clay Christensen, of course, so famously talks about, um, history is repeating itself because social itself took advantage of the previous system. What, uh, Stephen, how would you categorize what social replaced? Well, I think it didn't replace it, mapped on. I think, you know, there's a long period of mapping on things in real life to the digital world, right? I mean, it used to be we didn't do things by computers. We didn't do anything by computers. We didn't touch computers. Um, but it turned out the the digital world offered us solutions that were more powerful than things we did by hand. Like think, think about a spreadsheet, right? How easy it is to change one cell in a spreadsheet and everything else updates it. And that you know, not only saves that tedium that you did before, but allows you to do things you couldn't have done otherwise. You could model a company and, you know, press the levers and see what, you know, gee, what happens if we, you know, open an office here or start selling this. And, and, and basically you can make a simulation of a company that then you could map out. I wrote a story about this in 1984 called A Spreadsheet Way of Knowledge. And then with the way we communicate with each other, that all changed too, right? With, you know, first email and then uh, mobile and texting. And, you know, so social was one way that we were able to uh, supercharge our relationships with the people we knew and maybe even lost touch with, and we can be able to stay in touch with them. Um, and, you know, you could play a game with them, words with friends, or you could uh, be in a group with them, whether it's your family or someone who, you know, everyone had the same disease, they could share their experience. So these are things to supercharge what you knew in the analog world. Um, now, with AI, uh, we're moving away from the analog world. We're moving to the alien world, right? You know, so we don't need, you know, ET, we've got AI. Stephen, in, in my conversation with Glenn Reynolds, I'm sure you remember him as a, an early and very influential. Yeah, I remember blogger. I remember the blogging year. I wrote a big story. Uh, Instagram. Um, yeah. I mean, he's still around. He mentioned 9-11 as the critical moment when he thinks blogging became real. Um, as you mentioned, you've been around a while. You even wrote about uh, you wrote about uh, technology and spreadsheets back in 1984. Um do you think that 9-11 was the moment when blogging became real and laid the foundations in some ways for the social media age? No. Um, you know, I, I remember that I think peak blogging, you know, sort of like came a couple of years before that. I remember um, at Newsweek, I was arguing for a cover on blogging. I actually wound up doing a big story and that was... Uh, I'm, I'm positive before 9-11, you know, 9-11, I think, shifted direction of blogging. It became more political. And, you know, these people called the war bloggers. Um, and, you know, I think maybe it was the beginning of the end of blogging uh, where it became uh, politicized to, to a bigger degree. You suggest then it happened, blogging began in the late, late 90s. Um, so yeah, but of, it sort of peaked in the mid 2000s. You know, so, I think so, probably going back to, was there a moment in the late 90s when blogging appeared to you as a mainstream tech writer uh, to become real? And, and secondly, do you see blogging as the first chapter in the age of social media? Um, 
Well, I'm trying to remember what year it was. You know, I mean, you could pinpoint it because all it, it was brewing for a number of years and you had this RSS thing, you know, where you can get a feed of, 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 of blogs. Um, but, um, um, and I'm thinking, when was it that probably early 2000s when uh, Google bought Blogger um, yeah. from yeah. Ev Williams? Because I remember I, I visited his company that, you know, when he escaped from Google, um, he had a bad time there. Uh, uh, he's, you know, uh, he, had, he did a podcasting company, which was, you know, pretty interesting considering it was years before podcasts took off. But when Apple came out, with its uh, podcast uh, app, um, you know, or uh, it was, you know, just a service then, um, you know, Ed Williams bailed. And uh, fortunately, some guy in his company named Jack Dorsey figured out this thing called Twitter and they pivoted to that. Um, but blogging to me peaked in the mid uh, aughts, right? And then it got, you know, this uh, somewhat of a second win by the war blogging, uh, you know, I guess that was powered by the war blogging 9-11 stuff um, uh, before that. But, uh, you know, uh, it was, you know, I think the, you know, the, it peaked because you had mommy blogging, you had war blogging, all kinds of stuff. Um, and uh, which sort of peaked around that time. And by the time the social networks like Facebook uh, sprung up um, and later Snapchat and other kind of things that sort of pushed out blogging as as key because those social networks um, shuffled news to us and you know the the RSS which delivered our blogs uh, became less powerful so the delivery method for blogs um, weakened when Facebook and Twitter and other places, you know, became our feeds. Yeah, it's interesting. I wonder, you know, we're doing this as a podcast. Why podcasting survived and has indeed prospered and not blogging? Um, I think, you know, as I say, the, you know, the delivery system was different. I think what powered podcasting was that people were able to get these streams in their cars. And that gave them, you know, people a place to listen uninterrupted and, you know, to replace radio, which was fading for people's lives. So um, that gave people time to do that. You mentioned Facebook, but of course, the first social media companies were MySpace and Friendster. What, when you think back, um, Stephen, you, you knew everybody. You, you have incredible anecdotes on everyone. What do you remember about the, the Friendster and MySpace age? Well, Friendster is a, a great case of, you know, uh, getting out like ahead of its skis. I mean, they, what happened was that uh, they grew so fast that they didn't have the infrastructure and, you know, the service became beastly. Uh, when you look at Friendster, it really was a template for Facebook. Um, and as I documented in the book, Facebook, the inside story, um, you know, definitely the year before uh, Zuckerberg wrote Facebook in his dorm room, um, you know, he and, and Adam D'Angelo were, you know, playing with Friendster. 
Um, you know, uh, the Winklevoss twins kept saying, oh, he took it from us. No, he took it from, from, from Friendster. And other places were trying to do it, too. I don't mean to, you know, say he stole it. I mean, lots of people were trying to do it, and that turned out to be uh, the way to do it. There was Orkut, which came out of Google, which operated similarly. Uh, MySpace, again, is a similar product, but um, they founders of that took their eyes off the ball. I remember I had lunch one day with the founders of MySpace. I was working for Newsweek then, and it was around maybe 2006 or so. And um, I told them that my son's uh, high school had just moved en masse from MySpace to Facebook. And uh, is this something they worry about? And what I expected them to say was maybe ask me some questions, saying, really, what happened? Who did this? And, you know, was it, you know, like a mass migration? Was someone influential doing it? But they brushed it off. They didn't care. What this, who cares about this little, these little pipsqueaks in, in Palo Alto? Um, uh, so they, they laughed it off. And I thought, and they started telling me we're going to do a music label and we're going to get involved in politics. And I, and I, it was so weird to me that they were brushing it off. What was clearly a rising threat to them that a couple of days later, before I wrote my column, I called up their PR person. And I said, listen, I, I want to give them another chance um, because I don't want to make them seem so blithe about this threat. They, they, they might seem like bad co-CEOs or whatever. Um, so I had another conversation, but they didn't really change. They, they, they really said the same things. And all they wanted to talk about was the other stuff they were doing. It sounded like the way AOL kind of like degraded its brand by making these big deals and trying to get into all sorts of other activities away from the core social activity, which is what made people like, like it in the beginning. Um, so, uh, you know, there it was, and I knew right away that uh, uh, MySpace uh, was not going to be a comer, and you know, I I would have bet on Facebook. Yeah, anyone, well, anyone who bet on Facebook back then would would, would be a very rich person. Yeah, like um, Peter Thiel and uh, Reed know, Hoffman, uh, Reed Hoffman, and uh, um, Mark Pincus. Yeah, so. How you've you've been watching this space? You've written this the authoritative book on Facebook. How profound an impact do you think has social media had on the outside culture? You know, we've talked about nine eleven. You don't think nine eleven marked the beginning of uh, of the social media age? I was just I've been listening to the oral history an oral history of nine eleven by Garrett Graff. The only he's player. a great writer. So it's a great book. He's a great writer, but actually the uh, the audio book's fantastic because it basically it, it reads or, or you listen to it like theater. He has a lot of the original people recorded uh, their work. It's so astonishing to listen to a story which was only 20 years ago, just a little over 20 years ago, where no one had smartphones, where no one had social media, and yet it was uh, all about communication and how people communicated. H how do you see things, Stephen, in terms of the impact of technology on the broader culture, the political, the cultural, the economic world, uh, or vice versa. How profound an impact has social media had on the first 22, 23 years of the 21st century? 
Yeah, it's pretty huge. I mean, um, it depends on how widely you describe it. I mean, if you include like WhatsApp and things like that and, and messaging, um, you know, uh, it's our main form of communication. I mean, you're absolutely right in terms of 9-11, the way things worked. I was at Newsweek when that happened. And, you know, uh, the big media institutions like Newsweek were really where people, you know, like leaned on. They were desperate to get the news from places like that. So we were, it was a very top-down thing. In a way, I'm, I almost think in horror what would happen for, for a lot of reasons. But in addition to the horror of another 9-11, if we experienced it, what would happen, the way the news would disseminate, would probably be in a much more destructive way. We would get rumors out, you know, and they would circulate widely and the truth might never win out, right? I mean, if you look at the pandemic, maybe that was like a, a another apocal disaster. Um, and, you know, social media uh, helped make things worse. And I think... Uh, uh, that would happen again if we were under attack like that um, uh, because of just the nature of how bad information can circulate um, as rapidly, probably more rapidly than good information because good information needs to be uh, reported and fact-checked. Yeah, one of the, <laughs> listening to the, 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 the audio book of only, only, the only plane in the sky, it's astonishing that people were calling other people, asking them to put their TVs on. They were calling from the towers, asking them to put their TVs on to find out what was happening. Today, we simply take it for granted that we all have access to whatever is happening immediately. And it's something that happens so quickly. How has it changed us, Steve? Well, it, it, I think we demand information you know, more quickly. Um, and that drives our hunger, hunger drives us um, to, you know, accept that it might not be accurate. Um, you know, uh, it used to be that people in big media, big legacy media thought that, well, they'll, they'll come to, to trust us and they'll wait for us. Right. But people don't wait for, what's in the newspaper the next day or in a news weekly, like a few days, like from that, from now. Um, uh, and even newspapers have changed. Uh, and the way you get news in newspapers these days, the way they cover a big event, isn't that uh, a one writer will sit there and, you know, they'll get the story from all these files and then put together this, you know, one story you read, that that's the story of what happened. This is the story of this school massacre or that, you know, outbreak or, or, or whatever happens. You know, they'll actually do sort of a feed, you know, with people coming in there. And it'll almost be like you have to write the story in your head. You like like all these people are coming in with files and reporters. The Newsweek, if you did a big story, you know, you would scramble the jets, they called it. And, you know, your correspondents in all different cities would, you know, send you these files. They'd look like little stories. And you'd be sitting there and these stories would pile up and you'd stitch them together and write like a narrative. And that would be the story of that event. Now you put it together yourself, you know, because it comes from all disparate places. And some of the places aren't from reporters, but just people like reporting rumors or even intentionally making up stuff 
just like to mess with your head, right? Or, you know, or for political purposes. Um, so we have a less, much less accurate grasp of what happens. You know, we have to wait, you know, with sort of these fake narratives in our head before we learn what's happening. Like the, the Chinese spy balloon, it, you know, the narrative changed like six times before we got to where we are now. It's probably going to change a couple more times. What about the evolution of social media? You you wrote the book on Facebook. Um, and a lot of other books have been written on these different social media companies. We had Sarah Fryer, who, who wrote The Authoritative History of Instagram. We had Chris Stoker Walker, who writes, who wrote a book, an interesting book on TikTok on the show. Um, you and David Kirkpatrick, of course, have written interesting books about Facebook. Has social media evolved? Is there any anything essentially different? Do you think between Facebook and TikTok, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and some of the others, Snapchat? Yeah, we moved away from the social, the original social media model, which was to be connected with people you knew, right? And we talked about you know things like the Dunbar number, like how many people can you really know, right? So you're allowed like five thousand friends, but you no one has five thousand friends. Um, if you if you friends with everyone, you really don't have any friends. The Dunbar number was what twenty six, huh? No, no, Dunbar was one hundred fifty. Ah. Yeah, you know, right. So then there's the closer circle of close friends, which you know, uh, you know, was you know maybe fifteen, but you know, the, you know, like one hundred fifty people, people you know. Um, if you run into the street, you would have a drink with them, you know, um, you know, but, uh, you know, but even of the 5,000 you were allowed, there would be someone at one point you might've had some contact with, or, you know, most people never got to there. There was an average of a thousand or something. And, but now increasingly they become sort of more broadcast oriented you know that uh mm. and i think tiktok really accelerated that so now you know facebook is you know their big product is reels which is a clone of tiktok of course and um before that it was stories you know which uh started at snapchat but stories were still generally started people generally followed people they knew in stories and that changed as influencers got a grip on it and now with reels um it's not your friends your your mother's not making a like a reel or a tiktok um you know you follow influencers so it's just a, a different way of sort of like a bigger like broadcast network um instead of walter cronkite you've got mr beast but we haven't all become stars. There was a lot of promise of the democratization of mainstream media. Huge that's gone. Media. No, no, that's gone. I mean, no, now no one is famous. Like a very small group of people are famous for 15 minutes. Um, you know, not everybody. Everybody wants to be. You know, it's unbelievable if you go to a high school and, and talk to people, how many people aspire to be someone with a million followers, but yeah, um, we did a show with a woman, a young woman who's written a book on influencers who who argues that. Yeah, but it's like it's like the NFL, right? I mean, you know, you've got people playing thousands and thousands of people playing high school football who dream of the NFL, but very very few people get there, and you know, and even fewer still, even if you make it, um, you know, wind up being better for it you know like ultimately you know the, the average eight you know the average 
tenure in the NFL is like three years, maybe. And I think the average, you know, popularity of an influencer, I, I guess, is maybe even shorter than that. Right. So you put all your chips on that. How many like long lasting influencers are, are people who do it now that are 16 years old? They're going to do it when they're 40. I don't, I don't think too many. Have you become, in, and, and you're not old yet, Stephen, but metaphorically in your old age, have you become Yeah, well. Are you, you, let's, you let's, always let's the most, you've always been the most cheerful guy in tech. You've always, always seen the, the glass half full. But it sounds to me like with fake news and the, the, the impossible promise of social media, prominence that not much has been achieved in this 20 years of the social media age. What are the positives? I think the positives are that it's enabled people to get in touch with each other more. I think that um, uh, people do, you know, it is possible, you know, among other things to deepen relationships. It's always nice when it's your birthday and, you know, a hundred people say happy birthday and, you know, you get, to, you know, their chances are there are people who, who know you and, and you could, you know, smile when you see their happy birthday greetings. Um, uh, no one ever says happy birthday to me. Maybe I should be on social media. Well, that's it. Yeah. If you're living your, you know, uh, in your living your apartment, they're not going to bang on your door and say happy birthday, but social media allows them to say happy birthday. Uh, and what about the issue of privacy, Stephen? I mean, a lot of people, a lot of, a lot of rather hysterical analysts suggest that we've all sacrificed our privacy in the social media age. Is that true? Yeah, and I think uh, that's definitely true. And I think that's because of the business model of most social media. Um, you know, we're primarily talking about, uh, you know, Facebook meta here. I mean, they decided that um, not only would ads be their model, but it would, um, you know, uh, as delivered by personal information would be their model. And, uh, and I think, and then Google has a hand in this, but other places too, um, you know, information brokers, uh, they track you like, you know, like dogged spies. And, um, and I think it's a failure of the legislature, of Congress in the U.S., um, uh, to prevent that from happening, uh, you know, it's it's just in your gut. You know, it's fundamentally wrong that when you go on the web and you look at, you know, browse at a store and you see a pair of sneakers, um, that shouldn't be information that follows you wherever you go on the web. The next time you log into Facebook, you get an ad for sneakers. Um, uh, it could be that then you might say, "Oh, great, uh, those are the sneakers I was looking at. I'll buy it." But that should be an opt-in thing, not something that you should opt out of, have to opt out of. And you really can opt out of it, um, uh, at least until Apple gave you a chance. And then that hurt Facebook's uh, advertising. But, you know, uh, there just should be a law about tracking people like that. Um, and Congress just has failed us in making that law happen. You know, um, even the, when they do pass a law, it really doesn't seem to have much impact. Um, the big law they passed in the European Union just winds up sticking this thing in your face saying about cookies that no one really understands. And they just throw their hands up and say, OK. So is Shoshana Zuboff or is Shoshana Zuboff right to call this age the age of surveillance capitalism? 
I think you can make a case for it. I know, and there's a lot of other things happening in this age, but um, uh, yeah, there's definitely surveillance tied to making money, and we're definitely, you know, helpless to avoid it. So maybe you're right, Stephen. Maybe, maybe we shouldn't be mourning the end of the social media age. Uh, and it's no coincidence that we have the rise of AI um, just when social media became redundant or hit a wall. Well, has, yeah. Has it yeah. essentially, has, has the logic of social media by 2023, is it simply ended? Might that explain why even Mark Zuckerberg embraced the idea of um, meta, of virtual reality as a way of escaping social media. So just as most of us want to escape social media, even Mark Zuckerberg wants to escape it. Now, Mark would say to you, though, no, that, that's not what he thinks. He wants, he believes that, uh, that VR um, is actually going to be social. So um, whether that will happen or not, you know, whether that's, that's, he'll be able to help make that happen or whether that is something that we're going to experience, we'll have to see. But he believes in his bones that it's going to be a social experience, that we're all going to be um, uh, just like we're connecting now uh, from some Zoomish kind of thing. Um, uh, we'll be doing that in virtual reality. So you know, um, a, a podcast like this would be, you know, uh, you know uh, might have your viewers watching us speak in the round or something. Um, and they might be able to go up to a virtual mic and ask a question. Uh, you know, Mark would like that. Finally, Stephen, uh, I've been um, tapping, mining your experience. You've been around this industry as so. Well, you're surveilling me as intimately as anyone. And uh, as I think I said to you last time we met, which may have been in Munich two or three years ago at DLD, I said we need a memoir from Stephen Levy. When are we going to get one, Stephen? Well, I think I think I've probably got another good they have a reporting book in me before, you know, I, I go to my chair and start. Well, I don't know why the, the two are, you don't have to do it. You, you could always do another reporting book. But your your narrative, you, you've known everybody from Jobs and Gates to, to, to Zuckerberg and, and, and Jack Dorsey. Well, yeah, yeah I mean. Um, I mean, I, right now, I think my value would be to keep talking to these people and, and keep reporting and, you know, tell the big stories. You know, my story, you know, isn't as big as the rise of AI, right? The rise of Stephen Levy doesn't match up to that. <laughs>